I don't know if you'll recognize the name Mike Lazarius. He was an incredible scientific mind. Turned out that he was born in Istanbul, Turkey. His parents were both Greek. They moved to Canada and settled in Ontario when he was about five years old. He had an incredible mind. You could just see it as a child. I mean, when he was in junior high, he won a science fair by actually creating a solar panel that worked. He was given an award. He had read every science book in the library there in his town. Turned out when he got to high school, he built his own computer. The teachers learned that if you were having a problem with your TV, you took it to Mike and he'd fix it for you. He went on to college to get a degree in electrical engineering. And then when he got out, he had his first big invention. It was an invention, a device that became a barcode reader for films, movies. It was so important to them, they actually gave him an Oscar award for technical advancement. But that was nothing compared to the next invention he had. The next invention he had would be loved by people like Bill Gates to Christina Aguilera, from Oprah Winfrey, who said, this has changed my life, to Barack Obama, who would not surrender it to the Secret Service when he became President of the United States. What did Mike Lazarus invent? Is the Blackberry. He's actually known as the father of the smartphone. Now, he invented the BlackBerry. It was a device for sending and receiving emails. And it had a keyboard and you could type with your thumbs. It was revolutionary. It literally did change our world. It was incredibly successful. But at the same time, there were other companies who were working on this kind of an idea. One of them was Steve Jobs and the iPhone. It was in 2007 that the iPhone came out. And Mike got a hold of one, and he took it apart, and he exclaimed, My goodness, they have put a Mac computer in a cell phone. And his immediate thought was, Who in the world would want that? I mean, nobody's going to want a computer in your cell phone. Who would absolutely want an app in order to have entertainment? You see, it actually had been 10 years before. Ten years before, some of his engineers had made the decision that we ought to include a, a web browser for the Internet. And they tried to get him to agree to that. And he said, nobody's going to want a web browser on their cell phone. So Mike said, no. Nope, we're not going to do that. Well, in 2009, it turned out that the BlackBerry was 50% of the smartphone market. 50% they controlled. It was a $70 billion company. Five years later, in 2014, it controlled 1% of the market. From 50% of the market in 2009 to 1% in 2014. You know, the problem with knowledge is that it keeps you from knowing what you don't know. It keeps you from rethinking some of your basic beliefs. 
It keeps you from going back and examining your priorities and what is true. And if we're not careful, we discover that we miss it. That's what Jesus was trying to get his disciples to do. To rethink some of their basic beliefs. All the men that he chose to follow him, well, they were good Jewish men. They'd grown up in Jewish homes. They'd had teachings. They went to the synagogue. They heard the laws. They read the Torah. I mean, these were people of great faith. They were out there following John the Baptist. They wanted to be righteous people. And Jesus would come along and he would take these people who were religious, people who were striving to be righteous, and he would then give sermons that said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Think about that. You've heard that it was said, and he would give a good religious teaching, but I say to you. He wanted them to rethink their basic beliefs to see the very things about the nature of God that they did not understand. That's a hard thing to do. We see a great example of it this morning in the disciple Philip. Philip, we know, was born in Bethsaida, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. He too was a fisherman. In fact, the other people who were from that town were Peter and Andrew. And after Jesus had already called Peter and Andrew, James, John, he went to Bethsaida and there he saw Philip and he said, come, follow me. And, and Philip, well, he was very analytical. He liked to think things out. He wanted to make sure he knew what was right. And he was very moved by Jesus. And he went to Nathanael. And he went to Nathanael and he said... We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I just want you to stop for a moment and compare what we looked at a couple weeks ago. When Andrew had heard Jesus speak and he went home with Jesus and listened to him teach. And when he left from there, he went and he found Peter and he's all excited. We have found the Messiah. How does Philip say it? We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's going to be specific, analytical. Let's be clear. Nathaniel, when he hears that, says, Jesus of Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? And Philip simply says, come and see. How would you do it? Come and see. Let's get together. We will follow and we will see what he teaches and what he says. Three years would go by. And now they would be in the upper room. They would be there on the night of the Last Supper, on that Thursday night. They would be there in the room where this was about to happen. In the end, it was one of those credible and powerful changing moments forever. Each week I've had a good time looking at the Last Supper as painted by Leonardo da Vinci, one of the greatest religious paintings in history. And Leonardo was very clear. He wanted to paint every disciple that expressed their personality. 
Again, if you've been with me through all of this series, the very beginning, we looked at how Jesus is in the center of the picture. He then splits the disciples into 12, six on each side, and in three, two groups of three each. The very first week, we looked at the far left, and we saw Andrew, and how Andrew was surprised. The second week, we looked to the far right, and there we wound up seeing Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the zealot. Last week, we moved closer to Jesus. There was a group of three disciples, and now we look to Thomas. And when he talked about Thomas, Thomas had his finger up, foretelling how Thomas would say, unless I can put my finger in the palm of your hands and feel the nail prints, I will not believe. Thomas was of that spirit. I want to see. I want to know. I want to touch. Is it surprising that Leonardo would put Philip in that same group of three, Thomas and Philip together? Philip has an inquisitive look. What is Jesus saying when he announces that he's going to be betrayed? It's like, I don't quite understand. What could this mean? It's this quizzical look. We know that right after Jesus announces that, he then celebrates for the very first time communion. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant that is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you shall drink it in remembrance of me. It was an incredibly powerful night. They're still trying to understand, and you could tell how distraught they are. And so Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. It's Thomas who speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Henceforth, you have seen him and you know him. And now it's Philip's turn to speak up again. Philip and Thomas. It's Philip who speaks up and says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Hearken back to the call. Come and see. And Philip is still saying, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. It's what we all want, to be able to see. What do we want to see? What did Philip see? This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series in the room where it happened. We said that what we're going to look at is the disciples before this event, their life and what they were like. Then they lived through this night in the upper room and this traumatic experience of Jesus' crucifixion. And then the question is, how are they going to go back to living life? Are they going to go back and do it the old way? Or is there going to be a new normal? Will they have the courage to rethink some of those basic beliefs? 
Are they willing to embrace the very things they do not know and help them to find a better way? And I've said that's what I want us to do. I want us, as we're in this time within the pandemic, to be looking at how was life and how did we live? And now what do we gain from this pandemic that we have been through for this last year? It's affected us all. We've had to isolate. We've given up hugging grandkids or parents. How many graduations have we missed or births or anniversaries or birthday parties? The things that we've had to forego. Have we learned anything? Has it encouraged us to rethink some of our basic beliefs, our values, our most important priorities? Is it possible we're going to come back to a new normal and do it different? That's what I hope we'll do. So this morning, I want us to look at Philip, and I want us to ask that question. So what did he see as he followed Jesus that would make him rethink his basic beliefs? And I just want to share with you two ideas. First of all, as he thought about following Jesus, what he saw was that Jesus was always showing compassion more than judgment. And that's not what religion was about. Religion was about making people follow the rules. There's the big 10. Then there was another 600 that you were taught and you're supposed to follow all these rules. And if you don't follow the rules, then you were no longer righteous. God would be angry at you and you would be punished. But Jesus didn't seem to always be talking about punishment. He seemed to emphasize compassion. For those of you who enjoy watching Coffee with Bob, the five-minute devotional I do each day, you can find it on our website and see it any time you want. I, I told you a story of Kyler Nipper. It's a little while back, but I didn't get to tell you the whole story about Kyler. If you didn't see it, then I'll remind you, Kyler Nipper. He was 11 years old and in the sixth grade living in Colorado Springs, Colorado, back in 2016. It turned out that Kyler had a problem with his leg. His tendon wasn't long enough. And when Kyler walked, he'd walk just on his toe. He'd ultimately have surgery to fix that. But walking around just on his toe and walking kind of funny, it really caught people's attention, the other kids. And in his school, the important thing than people was, what are the tennis shoes you wear? Do you have Air Jordan? Do you have a special Adidas? Kyler didn't come from a wealthy family. He wore black and white tennis shoes from Walmart, not Air Jordan. And since he had a funny walk to begin with, it attracted the kids' attention, and they began to tease him. And the teasing continued on to picking on him, and then to bullying him, physically and emotionally. When he had the surgery and he was in a cast, I mean, the kids literally pushed him and knocked him down and kicked him. It was physical and verbal abuse. And it just continues to escalate. You know, once you pick out somebody and you treat them poorly, you kind of come back and do it more and more. And so one day, Kyler's walking down the hall at school and this other kid just becomes angry and turns around and has this sharp pencil and starts stabbing him in the chest. Kyler's taken to the nurse's office. They call his mom, Cherie. They do not call the police. 
they do not call an ambulance. They just call his mom. Well, it turns out they had punctured Kyler's lung. By the time she gets there, he's already turning blue. She calls an ambulance. And the ambulance comes and they rush him to the hospital. And there the emergency room doctors take him back. And they're saying, we don't believe he's going to make it. They do emergency surgery and they put in a breathing tube. He would have it in for three days and he would make it. The recovery was slow. But when he came home, Kyler was different. Kyler couldn't be around people. He wouldn't go back to school. Now they realized they're going to have to homeschool him. He wouldn't go outside the house to play with people. He just stayed to himself. It was his mom who began talking with the family and saying, you know, this has been so bad. But we will not be ruled by hate. And we must respond to hate with kindness. And so weeks into it, on his own, suddenly Kyler is calling shoe stores and asking, would you donate shoes to poor kids? And people say yes. They actually start sending shoes. And he starts collecting shoes in their apartment. And I mean lots and lots of shoes. And his mom finally says, Kyler, what are you going to do with these shoes? And he said, I don't want anybody to have to go through what I went through. I want to give them to kids so that no one will tease them about their shoes in school. And finally on that Friday, she looks out the window and Kyler is outside with a card table with these shoes set up saying, free shoes. And kids are coming by in that neighborhood who need free shoes. And they're coming by and seeing these really nice shoes and they're taking them and Kyler will give them to them. And Cherie said, I saw him smile for the first time since the stabbing. And I could tell as he gave shoes away, he was doing something to heal his own soul. He made it for 10 minutes the first day. That's all he could do. And he came back inside. But he started doing it every Friday. Then 15 minutes, 20 minutes. He kept looking for more shoes and asking people, would you give shoes? And then he kept trying to give them away. It became Kyler Kicks. He didn't want anybody to have to go through what he went through. The family had finally decided that we probably need a new beginning. They had family and friends out in Las Vegas and they moved to Vegas. And there they went to work. They had a small apartment and Kyler really ramped up his new ministry. He started calling Zappo, the shoe distributor, and Zappo for good decided to respond and they sent him a thousand pair of shoes. And then Lady Gaga heard about it and she has her foundation, You Were Born That Way. And she wanted to support and she started sending shoes. And suddenly Tyler was, Kyler was giving away all kinds of shoes. I mean, 5,000, 10,000, up to 15, 20,000 shoes. It was amazing. And you could just see him getting stronger. But he said, you know what kids need? They need some place to go and to be able to talk when you're being bullied and to get counseling. And there is not mental help for kids around here, and especially for kids who are poor. And he talked about it more and more. And a person stepped forward and said, I have a building that's empty you can use. And medical people stepped forward and said, we will come and counsel for free. And suddenly he had set up Kicking It with Kyler Lounge. 
and 200 kids a day were coming to find a place to be able to talk and they were getting counseling. It was incredible. And then a pandemic hit. His parents lost their hospitality jobs. They had been right on the edge because of all the medical bills for Kyler. And so when that happened, they immediately became homeless. They started living in a shelter. But Kyler didn't quit this whole issue of I'm going to find shoes and give them away to kids who need them. And we're going to have this kicking it for Kyler's lounge. NBC came out and ran a news story, a national news story on, on Kyler Nipper. And it was David Copperfield, the great musician in Vegas, who happened to see the story. And he was so inspired that he reached out to the family and said, I want to rent you a home for the next year. They were overwhelmed with gratitude. They moved in. The giving away of shoes all continued to happen more and more. But I saw an interview with Cherie Snipper as she was talking about her son. And she wound up saying, she said, you know, we lost something of Kyler in the stabbing. But he is growing something more beautiful. She went on to say, it's clear that many teens not just my son, need mental health support. When she had to go to court, when I saw the kid that bullied and stabbed my son in court, I was expecting to see somebody I would have very negative feelings for. That moment I walked into the courtroom and I saw this little boy that almost took my son's life and all I saw was another child that was hurting just as much, if not more, than my own child. We will respond to hatred with kindness. To focus on compassion rather than judgment. What did Philip see? He saw Jesus sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman. The disciples had gone into town to get something to eat and they came back and there was Jesus talking with a Samaritan. You don't do that. We hate them. And a woman? You don't talk to a woman. And there he's talking to the Samaritan woman and not just any woman. She'd been married five times. She was living with a sixth man. If anyone needed judgment, she needed judgment. And he's talking about God's grace and living water and how God would love her. It didn't make sense. What did Philip see? They went on through Jericho. And when they're in Jericho, his fame has spread far and wide of Jesus. Everybody wants to be near him. But he looks up in a sycamore tree and there he sees Zacchaeus, who's the chief tax collector. No one is hated more than the chief tax collector. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to have lunch with you. And he goes and sits down to have lunch with Zacchaeus and all of his friends who come. And Zacchaeus talks about how I want to make good. I want to give back what I've taken too much. I want to bless life. It didn't make sense. What did Philip see? Jesus talking to a lawyer and he said, let me tell you a story. 
A father had two sons. And the youngest son came to the father and said, Give me my share of the inheritance. And he gave him his share of the inheritance. And he went into a faraway country. And there he spent his inheritance on riotous living, all kinds of wild things, until it was all gone. And now he is so hungry, he fed the pigs. And he came to himself and he thought, my father has hired servants who are doing better than I am. I will go home and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Take me back as a servant. And while he was coming home, while he was yet at a distance, the father saw him. The father didn't make the son come all the way home and grovel and punish him. The father saw his son at a distance and he ran down the road and threw his arms around him. And he hugged him and said, put a robe on his son's back, put a ring on his fingers and a shoe on his feet. Kill the fatted calf. We are going to make merry for my son who was dead is alive. What did Philip see? It's not what he expected of judgment. It was of compassion. If there's anything I hope you and I have learned as we have gone through this pandemic, it's how much we need each other and mean to one another. How much you remember to call a family friend or your children. What does it mean to help feed the hungry? To be there to clothe the naked and to visit the sick. To do it under the least of these. What does it mean to say, you know what matters? It isn't standing in judgment. Maybe what we need in this world is a softer, kinder, more compassionate world. But that may mean we have to rethink some of those things that we believe. And secondly, what did Philip see? He saw Jesus always talking about a new beginning. Even on a night of betrayal, he was saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. It was about forgiveness. In the midst of a horrible night of betrayal, he talked about forgiveness. The gift of God's grace, a new beginning. Maybe, maybe it wasn't going to be about a sense of condemnation or your world is now over. You're defined by the mistakes you've made. It really was about a new beginning again because of God's grace. When I started thinking about Kyler Nipper and his homelessness, it made me think about one of my favorite books, Same Kind of Different as Me. You remember it by Ron Hall and by Denver Moore? It's years ago now we talked about it. About how down in Fort Worth, Ron Hall, who was a very wealthy art dealer, he and his wife Debbie got involved in homeless ministry there in Fort Worth. They met Denver Moore and they all became special friends. Debbie would die from cancer. But Ron and Denver continued on their friendship and they even wrote a book, Same Kind of Different as Me all about homelessness and their own friendship and what happened. Well, after the book got published, I mean, it went to number one New York Times bestseller list, and people are reading it across the nation, and, and all kinds of ripple effects started to happen, and people wrote back in saying, let me tell you what happened because I read the book. 
And so they wrote a second book entitled, um, What Difference Do It Make? And they told some of the stories there. And one of my favorite stories was of a lady named Emily and her son Christopher. They, they lived in Seattle. Seattle has a real issue with homelessness. They read this book about Denver Moore and Ron. They were very moved and they wanted to be a part of making a difference. Emily was a single mom. Christopher's her only child. He was eight years old. They talked about it and she said, let's tell you what, next time we see someone homeless, let's feed them. And so they said, all right. It wasn't too long after that, they'd been to the grocery store. They'd gotten their groceries. They got themselves some nice fried chicken dinners, nice styrofoam boxes to bring home, have. And when they drove home up through their alley to come into their garage, there they saw two homeless men going through their garbage cans. And it was Christopher who spoke up and said, Mom, you remember what we said we're going to do? Why don't we give them the fried chicken dinner? And Emily's thinking, I wasn't going to have to cook tonight. You're absolutely right, Chris. That's what we said we're going to do. So they got out of the car. Each one took a dinner, took them over one of the men. Here, we'd like you to have this. I mean, they thought they'd won the lottery. They sat down right there and began to eat these fried chicken dinners while Emily and Chris began to unload the car and take the groceries inside. But while they were doing it, Emily said, I kept hearing a voice like I never hear. But this was a voice and it was so clear and it kept saying, do more. I'm asking you to do more. She just couldn't shake it while they're unloading the groceries. And finally she thought, all right. She went to her purse. She had $40, two $20 bills. She gave one to Christopher. She took one. They went back out and said, here, here's $20. Please use it for something good. They went back inside. They never saw them in again. She didn't think about it. A number of months went by. And then one night, there was a knock at the door. She looked at the peephole, and there was a man standing there. He was clean, nicely dressed, shaven. And he said, I'd like to come in and visit with you and your son about the gift that you made of a chicken dinner and $20 and how it changed my life. And she's thinking, goodness gracious, only four people in the world know about that day. She said, I'm not in the habit of opening my door to strangers, but I thought, this has to be one of them. She opened the door, got Chris, invited him in, and he sat down and he said, that night when we were in the back of your house and you gave us a, a dinner, oh my goodness, I thought I'd won the lottery. It was so delicious. It meant so much. And I was so happy. And then you came and gave me $20 on top of that. And I thought, this is really great. I'm going to have dinner. And then I'm going down and get a drink. And Emily thought, that's why you don't give homeless money. He said, I got through and I went down to the bar at the end of the street. I went inside. I never go inside a bar because you have to have money to go inside a bar. Never have money. And it was obvious they didn't see people like me around very often. So I sat down, the waitress came over, and she said, what's your name? Where do you live? I told her I'd been living on the streets for 20 years. She said, does your family know that you're here? No, no, they think I'm dead. You need to go home. 
No, no. After all that I've done, it's far better that I just leave it this way. Oh, I don't agree at all. They will want to know. You need to go home. No, no. You need to go home. Just sit right here till I finish my shift. He said, she served me coffee. He said, I sat there drinking coffee and waiting for her shift to get over. Then she came back and she told me to get in her car. I got in her car and she drove me to the bus station and she bought me a ticket, a one-way ticket home. And I decided to go. And when I got home, it was like the story of the prodigal son. My family came out of the house and they threw their arms around me and they hugged me. They were so happy to see me. They brought me into the home. I was stunned. They let me stay there. I stayed there with them for three months. They got me into rehab. They got me sober. I have a job now. I have a place of my own. I'm making it in the world. I'm clean, I'm sober, and I'm working my program. And I'm trying to go back to people that I may have hurt or offended, to apologize and to ask for forgiveness, to make amends where I can. But I've also decided I wanted to go back and see all the people who helped me along the way and blessed me and to say thank you. And that's why I've come to see you and your son. And then he said, I just wanted to tell you that the $20 you gave me, I intended to use it to go drink so I could forget. But God used that $20 as seed money to help me remember who I am and that it is God who still changes people. To have a vision of what life can be. A new beginning. To be willing to have the courage to rethink our basic beliefs. That maybe God's grace is more important than condemnation. That compassion is more important than judgment. that maybe what we need right now is a kinder, gentler, more loving world. Philip, what did you see? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen.